In this compilation episode about curriculum design and change, we hear the views from past guests like Luke Felker, Annie Gent, Jane Prescott and Joe Algrant. Do you think it's difficult to change education? Yes, it is. I think change is difficult in all industries. I think it's remarkably challenging in schools. What you've just described, I think, has been a fairly traditional you know, post-industrial age model of education for a very long time in much of the world. And it is tough to change. It's one of the reasons that while my heart has generally been and would be in public education, I have appreciated the flexibility that is afforded by independent schools. There's pros and cons to every model. And I appreciate that the scale allows us to potentially impact change at a far faster pace than some of the complexities that can be found in other types of educational models. Your school-based school is in San Francisco, and three years ago, you introduced what you call Bay 2.0, which is very tech and very cool. What is that, and can you describe the nuts and bolts process of getting there? Bay 2.0 is, is really a story about a massive schedule and calendar redesign that was fundamentally around academic boldness and innovation, not minutes and hours, so that's what's changed. It was a process that galvanized and united our entire faculty and staffalty around a clarified vision for Bay's academic future, and one that I should note ended in unanimous faculty support for moving forward with Bay 2.0. I think important to note that for us, this update to our schedule and calendar, while on some level I think was revolutionary, for us was an evolution. And it's really based on our commitment to interdisciplinary, experiential, and project-based learning. In terms of process, it was a multi-year iterative process to bring us to Bay 2.0. There was a scheduled 2.0 committee, not surprisingly, with wide engagement from faculty, academic leadership, senior leadership, and as well as the board, including great partnerships with outside institutions and outside thinkers to really inform our work. The goal was to recommend to the leadership team and then to myself as head of school that final schedule, that final path forward. And remarkably proud that 100% of our faculty voted in support of this new schedule. And this at a school where generally we would have a hard time agreeing on pizza toppings. So I think it really spoke to the depth and the longevity of, you know, again, a probably about a three to four year process to bring us to 2.0. It's not easy introducing change into any organization. And in your experience, what are the conditions that need to be in place? I would comment on four areas. One is a change orientation culture. Uh, the second are systems of distributed leadership and participation. Third, having an established inquiry process. And lastly, and not surprisingly, a hearty dose of responsiveness and flexibility. I'm happy to comment on any of those, but I think those are the four key nuggets. Yeah, amazing. And then obviously you commenced on this three years ago, and then not long after that, the pandemic hit. What were the lessons from that for your program? And how did you adapt? The lessons really reinforced the value of those foundational conditions I just referenced. Take a change orientation culture. Change is tough. And so how do you bake into the systems and processes of a school a commitment and an interest to change? For instance, we talk about a culture of yes. How do we generally say yes as a school to innovators and builders? And how do we give them the resources and the time to bring to life their ideas? That culture of yes made it a lot easier to then respond to you know, the massive organizational challenges that the pandemic created, because we already tended to lean into interesting design questions and intriguing design solutions. You know, Likewise, you could talk about distributed leadership and participation. While Bay certainly has plenty of growth areas and areas we can improve, 
a great deal of the program and the work of the institution is shared and is distributed amongst faculty, faculty leaders, and other faculty. The collective holding and sharing of the mission and program, I think, put us in a far better place, we say, ready to meet the moment when the pandemic hit. Being a community of builders and a community that is shared in the creation of a place, I think, really fast-tracked our ability to use an overused word, pivot, create the programming, and to sustain what was necessary for the educational life to continue to be vibrant for our students. How important is adventure in education? We don't talk about adventure as much. Oh, we do. As I said, my deputy co-curricular is part of his title is adventure. I think you've got to provide adventure for children. This is the glory years of education. It's the most exciting time. And you can throw out the rule book in a prep school. Yes, there are risk assessments and you have to get things across the line. But actually, if there's a will, there's a way. And I am incredibly lucky because I can drop a little bomb in somewhere. I go, oh, could we do something for Coronation Day? This was months ago. Before I knew it, this whole cross-curricular event, a whole day of amazing activities as they ended in a joust, which was brilliantly exciting. When you've got a body of staff that goes, we can do that. That is so exciting. And, and we've got our head of humanities and trips and excursions who works for my deputy head. She's magic. I don't know how she does it, but Every trip we do, if it's a tiny one, a micro adventure, which we send our children out, they go and map read and have to camp out overnight somewhere and come back to school in the morning to like the big trips. You know, this year we're doing Paris and Shropshire. We make these trips into such sources of adventure for them. So it's not just right. you're going to go and see a play. It's what can you build around that play? What other experiences can you have within that trip? So it's a really exciting time for us because we don't want to just be, okay, we've got an English trip going out or we've got a history trip. It's like, what else are these children learning? So it's giving them a sense of adventure and wonder and to be really curious about what they're learning about, but also to bring it back to their education. So they've got this enriched education. When you've got all of those things, the children are desperate to learn. Couple that with feeling safe and secure and knowing that you are in a really wonderful environment just helps your children become even braver. So if they go, we want to try this, we'll be like, right, how can we make it happen? That's where you've got to instill this sense of anything can happen. Prep school is just magic. You know, we haven't got the zip wire yet. I have been nagged about a zip wire for years. I haven't got that yet. You know, if they want to, we did this amazing color run and that was a small adventure, but it was quite a fun one. Our year eights are desperate to do another one. Like, go and do it. You plan it. I will help. That sort of can-do attitude creates that sense of adventure, I think, because they're like, okay, I can do this. Of course I can. You know, if my teacher's telling me I can, well, yeah, I can do it. We're in a really exciting time as a school where we're building all these opportunities, trying to do them on a shoestring because it's not an easy world out there. But give them this sense of when they leave our school, my goodness, what have they done? What have they seen? What have they been exposed to that has sort of set them prepared for senior school life? And yeah, it's just, it's really exciting. I'm off to London for a three-day residential next week. I'm not quite sure how we're cramming everything in. It's a vast array. We've got Hampton Court. We've got the Tower of London. We've got Wellington Barracks. We've got Houses of Parliament. We've got a It Goes Wrong show in the West End. We've got Chessington World Adventures. So we try to give them a real breadth. So they're, they're learning, but they're also having fun. We're also taking them on the tube, which I'm slightly nervous about. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I tell you what, that is adventure. I mean, put me in the outback before the tube. 
Yes, I definitely feel. Dealing with, with London commuters, they are a breed unto themselves. I want to ask you about you know, how difficult is it to introduce this sense of adventure across a wide curriculum? Because you can understand it if being part of co-curricular and, you know, adventure and outdoors and things. But how do you make sure there is a thread? And I suppose adventure, when you break it down, is about challenging yourself to try new things. Because that's what adventure is. You just don't know. You have an idea as a direction you may go, but you'll uncover things as part of it and you want to peer behind the rocks and to try nothing. Has it been easy to bring it in? Children are innately curious. So if you've got a body of children who are bouncing around, you've got a body of staff who go, right, how can we do this? How can we give the best education to these children? You are set free a little bit. Of course, there's a knowledge-rich curriculum. But we're not governed in quite the same way. You know, we don't have SATs for children that are doing them now. We've got time and space within our day, within what we do, within our lessons, within the really broad range of curriculum to play around with it a little bit and to go off piste. Because I think the worst thing to do is for a teacher to go, I've got my PowerPoint and I need to get through this lesson. That's not what education is. What education is, is steering children and giving them the tools to go and explore it themselves. They're brilliant at this age. It gets much harder as they get to teenagers because they need to be spoon fed or want to be because they've got to go through that set of exams. We don't have that. We've become a PSB school, which is the pre-senior baccalaureate. And alongside what we do in our curriculum, it's all about learning different skills for the future. So we've got collaboration, leadership, independence, communication, thinking and learning and reviewing and improving. So every time we're teaching a child, not just things they need to know, it's what are they doing? Also looking at how you communicate today. How are you collaborating with your peers, for example? When we're doing that, we are already looking at how we can do cross-curricular links because you don't teach in a silo. You can't. You can't say, I'm an English teacher, so I'm only going to do English. You know. You look at what's happening in history at the time. You look at might be what's happening in the news at the time. And then you link things together. So in our year eight program, for example, choosing a really, not a dull one, but an easy one. You know, we've been teaching Animal Farm alongside in history where they've been teaching communism. So you link it together. And then, of course, they love it because then they can have all their mock debates and challenge authority. And it's really exciting. And we try to link everything we do. We look really carefully. So... We had our pole-to-pole day last, it was actually in December, our pole-to-pole day, but we looked, it was all about sustainability, science and history predominantly. But alongside that, we were writing postcards. So you bring in your English, where they were painting the postcards, looking at what's happening to the poles now. And that all came through art and DT. They had to pull the, um, the explorers when they were pulling all their packs along the ice. We reconstructed that for them. So then they had their physical kind of endurance that they had to experience. So I think when you've got a body of staff, a group of staff that talk all the time and are constantly looking to not change for change's sake, because there's a lot of really good stuff and you know that happens, but how we can develop it and how we can make it meaningful for children. They learn better anyway when they can connect the dots. But you've got to have a group of people that want that to happen. And I'm very lucky because I do have a group of people that we talk all the time. And they go out there and they come up with these amazing ideas and they work collaboratively, they work together. And then it makes it an easy way of educating. And it's so much more fun because everyone's working together. 
often you hear young people expressing that they're learning things that they don't feel they'll ever need to know. I had this example just last night with my son who's about to graduate and go to college. It's just because I'd come back from visiting a school and I remember him learning when he was 16 about covalent bonds and ionic bonds. I just remember because my wife loved chemistry and my daughter had gone through it and he, he just couldn't get it. And I said, I saw this post and I thought of you. And he goes, do you know what, dad? I still don't know what that is yet. I got the highest mark I could possibly get. He goes, I still don't know what it means. And he said to me, surely that's why education is flawed. I could learn things and memorize things. So you've expressed that we need a relevant and responsive curriculum. What do you mean by responsive? You, 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 you're on the covalent bonds. I, I, know. I, I love it. I, you know, I, I love it because I taught covalent bonds and I understood totally what he's saying to you. Your example is interesting because in some ways, covalent and ionic bonds are extremely relevant if you understand why, and you have the example that, for instance, if you're going to talk about water, you know, which is a prevalent piece of what I think everybody needs to understand, to really understand water, you have to understand what makes water, water. And to do that, you have to understand, you know, the ionic and covalent bonds, right? Which is really just to say that a lot of stuff that gets taught can be relevant if you take the time to put it in the right context, which I think doesn't always, doesn't always happen. You know, that's where a school like ethical culture, I think, really is able to shine because we put everything in the context of why it matters and the ethical dimensions of whatever the subject is. And in a school that is always striving to turn out students who are going to try to make change in the world, you have to give them a curriculum that lets them do that. And so that's not only the subject matter, but it's the way you approach it in terms of, all right, well, we're going to problem solve a little bit here. We're going to talk about problems and then we're going to try to solve them. You know, and we do that. I was in a third grade class the other day, and they have a fictional town, a fictional city, which she calls Greentown, which is New York, more or less. But they study the water patterns. They just study a lot of the, really at a third grade level, they study a lot of the important aspects of what makes a city a city in terms of the science pieces. And then they have to problem solve. And they you go to the level station where they are making, literally trying to make something that will improve one piece of Greentown. You know, and then I walk into a a semester-long program where students, instead of regular class, they study New York City. And this is a small piece of the school. But I walked in there and they were having the same discussion about water that the third graders were having, only at this much more advanced level. This is curriculum that is relevant to them, not only the subject matter, but the skills and the habits that we're trying to build in our students so that they're able to go out in the world. You know, as a science teacher, it was always, well, this may be the last time that a student sits and learns any chemistry or any biology, which was more my field. So for me, I wanted them to have a good grasp of what they needed to know so that they could go off and make decisions that were smart ones. I think curriculum needs to be relevant in that way that it prepares students that way. Also, for kids, they find it much more interesting if it's relevant to them you know, as do we all probably. So there are courses here where they kind of make up their own, they decide which problems they want to study, then they go off and they do that. Is it just about responding to current world events or is it responding to local events? Is it just responding to the current status of where we're at in our journey in this planet? And you then bring in, you say, all these different skills and let the children bring in the education that they understand because it's connected. I think that's one piece. There's another whole way to look at responsive, responsive teaching, which is, you know, kind of the schools and the teachers' obligations to understand the backgrounds of the students who are in their class and be able to 
make sure that each student is able to elevate their own learning using their background as a strength. You know, so a culturally responsive classroom, which, you know, in this school and in many schools has people from many different backgrounds. You know, and this is another place where teachers have to be kind of more on top of it than they used to be because they have to understand more about where these kids are coming from in order to help them learn. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. And how do you manage, obviously, making it current and responsive without it being disruptive and inconsistent? Because sometimes, you know, how do you manage the change, you know, and even with your, your teachers, so they know that it's relevant to bring it into how they're teaching? There probably is a model. The model in this school is a lot has to do with not only do we want the kids to learn to be autonomous, but the teachers feel very autonomous also, which, again, lets them be creative and really smart about what they're about what they're doing. It happens in different ways, right? Obviously, the teachers have to talk a lot with each other about what relevance means in the different subject areas and, and how you, you know, how you organize a curriculum that feels relevant. And some of those things are very subject specific. And a lot of the culturally responsive stuff we do as whole faculties and in other kinds of groups where the teachers are, are in different kinds of, of seminars or workshops or reading, you know, about ways to make their classrooms feel responsive to everybody. And how do we ensure that a curriculum does remain relevant? For one thing, the children will tell you. And again, I'm just learning this school again, but I've been listening to some of the different departments actually struggle with how to make sure they are being relevant, right? So in an English curriculum, you know, there are lots of ways to teach English and lots of books, obviously, that you can choose from. Well, how do you ever figure out for a ninth grade, you know, what are important books and what are not important books and what are books that help kids? actually learn about their society, you know, and which ones are the classical canon that has been read and read and read and read is, you know, is that relevant anymore? Sometimes yes, sometimes not so much. And yeah, teachers have to make hard choices. I once had a teacher come into me, um, the school I used to work at, where they had a curriculum in their 11th grade English program, which they really, they had worked so hard, they thought this is it. Every child in America should have this curriculum. She walked into me one day and she had a she had had a nightmare. And I said, oh, my gosh, what what happened? And she said the nightmare was that her department chair was telling her she had to remove one poem from an entire curriculum and she couldn't decide which poem that was going to be. They thought they really just had it nailed, nailed down. And it was a great (laughs) curriculum. There's no question about it. There's been a, a lot of that. But at the same time. Again, now you have kids in some of those classes, in fact, in that class, who never saw an author who looked like them, who never saw, never had a discussion about a topic that was really relevant to the stuff that happened to them when they walked out the door and went home. You can't be a responsible school without making sure that kids are, you know, are gaining the tools that help them in their lives. How do you ensure that education keeps up with the accelerating rate of change as technology advances? We have to invest. That's investing in the technology, in the hardware, in the software, but also investing in people. We need our people to be able to use whatever the new system is. And I think we can all see a time when a certain low level of professions is going to be done by an algorithm. 
You won't need to go to a lawyer. You don't have to now to write a will to perhaps do basic bookkeeping. If you have your own business, you won't need an accountant. That's already here. That's already possible for everybody and anybody to use. So we must make sure then that we're offering an education system that's beyond that, that's offering a long levity to the careers and the opportunities that we're offering our young people. COVID, the pandemic, saw exam structures change, marking change, the award of you know, almost children's futures were determined and thrown up in the air. Do you think that GCSEs are still fit for purpose? And are we teaching the relevant skills to today's youth? I, for a long time, have not thought that GCSEs were fit for purpose. And I know not everybody agrees with me on that. And nothing to do with COVID. Long, long, long before that was even an idea on the horizon, I have thought that GCSEs don't offer everybody the best opportunity to show what they're capable of doing, achieving and of studying. I just don't understand why we've got this arbitrary grade C or level four that means it's a pass or not a pass. So does that mean if you've got a load of level twos, what does that absolutely show? Are those exams and the curriculums and specifications that we're all working to, are they teaching what we need children to know? For a long time, I thought that we should have two levels of maths, for example. There should be basic numeracy that people show that they can pass. And then perhaps a more advanced level if you want to go on to use maths in a particular profession. If you want to be an engineer, for example, or study maths at an advanced level or even at degree level. And it's the same for English. We just need to have a, a basic level of English. And then there can be more advanced levels of it to show what some people can do that serve a greater ability. I always thought it was a shame that they got rid of A-level creative writing, because in fact, that really did show what people could do at a higher level in creativity, rather than just being able to understand the English language with punctuation and so on. I think the time is right for a look at what we do and what we offer and when. Do we need to be testing young people at 16? Can we not just move them to the next phase in their lives and careers to lead them to employment, long-term employment, because that's got to be best for everyone? But I wouldn't like to rush it, and I don't think it's got anything to do with COVID. This has been coming for a long time, and we've got to take time now to consult with everyone, from employers to higher education and further education institutions to schools to teachers, to the children themselves about what is it that we should be offering that will help them in the future. You know, employers are looking at problem solving, creativity, adaptability, critical thinking as kind of key skills. A number of schools are migrating their curriculum across to the IB because they believe that that's more fitting with the way that you can adapt to those skills and also becomes not really subject-based, but it's topic-based, and you, and you get to share and learn all the skills that come up to the topics. Do you have much experience of the idea and how that compares to the GCSE and A-levels? I don't have much experience of the IB. Um, I have lived in Germany, which of course has a, an IB-type system. I think if we were going to keep it much more general later on, then that really does change the education landscape, not necessarily for the better. 
So, for example, one of our current problems with doing IB at A-level age is that our GCSE system doesn't lend itself to an IB-type structure. If we were to adopt an IB-type structure for that lower level and then at a higher level, then our university courses have got to change too. The countries that have those as their route to university then tend to do general uh, degrees such as liberal arts and then go into much more specialisation. So, for example, a doctor in some countries will do a general degree first and then specialise as a doctor as a second qualification, Not whereas our young people at the moment at 18 go off to study medicine. What changes have you put into Portsmouth High School that are kind of adapting to the needs of employers and what the world looks like? Well, we do the EPQ, the Extended Project Qualification at A-Level, and that has increased in popularity to the point at which virtually all of them do it. And I think it's a great indicator how well and how good they are at research and self-study. It gives them an idea of what an undergraduate dissertation structure looks like. I think it really does give an added advantage. I'd like to see that becoming more popular at GCSE age as well. And that are equivalence to the EPQ. At the moment, I think it's hard to squeeze into our current curriculum, but it would be nice to have that there because we've got rid of coursework. There's very limited opportunities for independent research. It's a good skill to acquire at those ages. Here in the Girls' Day School Trust and the GDST, we offer limitless learning to year 13 so that they can, if they wish, take a MOOC at that stage, one of these massive open online courses and expand their horizons, their ideas before going to university. So I think there are ways in getting that breadth into the curriculum alongside studying subjects that we really enjoy. And do you or have you looked at offering your own educational resources as a MOOC for other students in other parts of the world to leverage your knowledge and your great teaching? The GDST has certainly looked into this and they have done that for teachers and they have looked at um, various learning packages. But I haven't here at Portsmouth High School got into that yet. But I definitely think it's something to consider for the future. What we have done here is that we have a program of thinking skills. We call it our ARET program. We enable the girls to think about ideas with a much broader approach, not trying to put things into very small compartments, but to think much more laterally as well as deeply so that they acquire those skills before they go off to the next stage of their education. I just love the idea that the independent sector particularly can offer up some really great resources and really great teaching, some innovative thinking that can be then accessible and available to the many. I often talk to independent schools who have gone out and franchised abroad. I feel that they are chasing the money and not really doing much for education. The idea of actually being really good at education, but making it accessible, I think it's a really great platform that all independent schools should start to look at. Because imagine what educational change you can drive by just bringing some of your incredible teaching that all everything we've learned over the last two years about being able to deliver it properly digitally. Just because you've got a good teacher or good content doesn't mean you can deliver it well. So maybe that's something that we can start. Maybe we can start this platform that may snowball because I'd love to see it. I'd love to see it because it's almost like in my future 
vision of the future school is that it becomes more accessible, like pick and mix that I can come and do something. My daughter could come and do something from your school or even someone else from around the world. I mean, what are your we thoughts on that? We already have that. We actually have that in the GDST. We do a lot of collaboration with our other schools, which does include two academies up in Liverpool. So we actually do that much, much more now because we've all got so used to online learning. And I wonder in the future whether education at the secondary level anyway will go much more towards the TED Talk type um, system where you'll have not always, but you'll have tutorials, but maybe for the delivery of big concepts and topics, it will be done to thousands, if not more, TED Talk style with smaller discussion groups much more locally as a way of educating more people and hybrid learning almost certainly will come in where there'll be some at home learning and there'll be some present in the classroom. I think we're all going to have to adapt to a level of that. I think it is that mix. It's that hybrid star because what it has taught us, I think this last 18 months is that whilst we can deliver education remotely, people need people. There's nothing, there's that social aspect, that environment, the ability to be with other people that develop you as a person. And it's not about the hard skills and the knowledge you pick up, it's the soft skills. But I do agree with you in terms of having the TEDx star speakers because they need to inspire the millions. And then you then have tutors that can deliver the support of the learning piece of it. So I'm completely agreed with you on that. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.